Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really informative conversation on inhalational exposures pertaining to interstitial lung disease. Today, we're very fortunate to have Drs. Leanne Fernandez as our guest, and we will be discussing Dr. Lee's article entitled, Characteristics and Prevalence of Domestic and Occupational Inhalational Exposures across interstitial lung diseases. We will also discuss Dr. Fernandez's accompanying editorial entitled, Uncovering the Risk of Inhalational Exposures Across Interstitial Lung Diseases. So um, a very big thank you for joining us, and I'll let uh, uh, Dr. Lee introduce herself first. Uh, Katie? Sure. Uh, My name is Catherine, or Katie Lee. I'm a pulmonary and critical care fellow at the University of Chicago. And it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, and kudos Thank for you. you for being a fellow and writing this amazing <laughs> article. Um, Thank you. And then we have uh, Dr. Fernandez as well. Uh, Evans? Yeah, thank you for having me. My name is uh, Evans Fernandez. I am an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine and National Jewish Health in Denver, Colorado. I hold uh, the same title at the University of Colorado. And I am a clinical research scientist with a focus in clinical outcome and translational research in ILD, particularly hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And indeed, I was recently involved in the drafting of the newly published CHESS guidelines on the diagnosis and evaluation of hypersensitivity pneumonitis. Thank you for following us. An absolute pleasure to have an expert. Um, so, uh, Evans, maybe you could uh, share for us, you know, why is it so important for us to understand inhalational exposures across interstitial lung diseases and specifically about domestic and occupational inhalational exposures? Sure. Uh, environmental, including domestic and workplace inhalational exposures to an inciting organic uh, and inorganic particles or antigens uh, can produce a wide range of adverse lung consequences, ranging from bronchiolitis to ILD, and certainly are modifiable contributors to the burden of chronic lung disease globally. And so it's extremely important for the clinician to be aware of this. There are several reasons why to pursue the search and characterize the environmental and occupational exposure caused in all patients, especially those who, again, present with uh, a suspected ILD, since the diagnosis and management and prognosis uh, has has important implications. From the diagnostic standpoint, knowledge of the inciting antigen exposure, for example, can help you establish pre-test estimate of disease likelihood, which is key, particularly when an ILD, such as hypersensitivity pneumonitis, is in the differential diagnosis. Uh, Since, for example, during the workup of a patient with HP, the interpretation of a positive or negative diagnostic test, you know, for example, a CT chest or uh, the VL results, is dependent upon the presence or absence of an identifiable exposure. In addition to the cis prevalence, in other words, uh, it helps establish the pre-test probability. Secondly, the correct identification of the exposure or the antigen and the subsequent elimination of that exposure 
can help facilitate the management and help, you know, determine the prognosis of of patients who have an, an occupational or environmental lung disease. Now, on the drug exposure history performed, we all know that the anti-omega don't recognize, and this is this is a problem. Uh, and this can result on ongoing exposure, possibly adversely impacting the course of the disease and survival. And this is crucial because the nature, in other words, you know, the dose and the duration of that exposure can contribute and increase the risk, for example, of classic pneumoconiosis, such as asbestosis or uh, chronic varicose disease, for example. Therefore, understanding the exposure may affect patient management and prognosis, and is critical uh, to preventing further disease progression. Also, characterizing the exposure may help identify a larger population at risk that may benefit from preventive measures, uh, as commonly sometimes happen in people with work-related exposures. And in addition, I think the identification of exposure may have significant legal and financial implications. Now, the importance of characterizing the exposure is not just restricted to hypersensitivity pneumonitis or uh, typical or classic chronic occupational lung diseases. For example, the association between silicon exposure uh, and uh, silica exposure and systemic sclerosis and RA uh, in bricklayers or concrete workers is well described in the literature. Also, there are numerous case control studies supporting the association and link between occupational and environmental exposures, such as metal dose, wood dose, even birds in an, an IPF. Now, while these studies have focused primarily in IPF over the last two or three decades, the type, the prevalence, and possibly the harmful effects of inhalational exposures remain really under study across a wide variety of ILD diagnoses. Uh, diagnoses. And I think this, this is why uh, this is a study by Dr. Lee who tried to address this issue so important. Agree, and uh, I think you've given us a good uh, overview of uh, the importance of understanding these exposures. Uh, Katie, maybe you could go ahead and describe what was your motivation or rationale for conducting the study? Sure. Um, so, you know, uh, throughout my time in fellowship, uh, I, as well as others, have seen patients in clinic, an ILD clinic, that don't necessarily have HP or a known exposure-related lung disease like pneumoconiosis, but happen to come into clinic with connective tissue disease or IPF. And then when you're taking a history, they say, oh, by the way, I've been working in a steel mill for 40 years. Or, oh, by the way, you know, I spent a lot of time in furnaces um, in my occupational time. Or, oh, by the way, um, I've had a bird in my house for 20 years, but they don't have what we think of as these traditional exposure-related interstitial lung diseases. And so through that, uh, we were inspired and uh, we wanted to characterize the prevalence of this inhalational exposure history across all ILD subtypes. And then kind of along with uh, what Dr. Fernandez was saying, um, further down the line, maybe in the right patients, this could prevent disease in the first place at high-risk populations or represent something to intervene on in, interstitial, in these interstitial lung diseases. So rather than thinking about disease subtype and then asking the questions first. We thought about asking the questions in all patients and then seeing if, uh, and so that further down the line, maybe these exposures could be intervened on to improve these patients' clinical outcomes. Okay. And then in your um, paper, you give a pretty good framework for how you classified the different exposures. Maybe you could go through that uh, for our audience and then after that, your study methods um, and how you addressed any uh, prior limitations of uh, prior studies. 
Absolutely. Um, so this is a single center study um, of all interstitial lung diseases of uh, one clinic provider. Um, so that way we could provide a standardization of the history taking as well as, um, and there was also a standardized diagnosis via our multidisciplinary uh, lung disease meeting. Um, and so we looked at all patients with ILD who came into the clinic at that time um, that were in our registry. And we didn't focus on any particular subtypes, again, just to try and get the general preference prevalence throughout all ILDs. And uh, what we used in order to collect this exposure history was a dot phrase in the medical record. Um, and so this way, with the dot phrase, it was both it was both simple enough that it was in the note, so as the provider was talking to the patient, there would be prompts as to what questions to ask, but it also made it easily standardizable from an analytic perspective in that, you know, these were yes or no questions. Some free text was available as well so that uh, we could really, you know, while simplistic, have a binary yes or no for exposure or not exposure in order to just get a general hypothesis-generating hypothesis look at um, what exposures were prevalent in this population. Um, as far as how we characterize them within the dot phrase, so there was an occupational um, there was an occupational question that had specific prompts about, you know, known um, occupational exposures like asbestos, steel, steel or silica, as well as free text in which the uh, provider could uh, list any other occupations that are known to uh, have an association with interstitial lung disease. Um, Similarly, for the domestic side, we classified patients as having mold, uh, mold exposure, uh, bird exposure, including down, um, or any other hobbies that have been known to be associated with interstitial lung disease in the past. Um, and so, uh, through that, after that exposure collection, uh, so our overall hypothesis was that there would be a high prevalence of exposures. There would be differential prevalence based on the demographics of patients, um, and that it would be associated with. Uh, specific radiologic findings or worse baseline lung function, and then be associated with worse survival. So let's dive into your study. So what were your key findings and how did you interpret them? So as expected, we did find that exposures were prevalent across all interstitial lung disease uh, subtypes. Um, in fact, we found that 65% of, of all patients studied had any history of any inhalational exposure. Um, this included subtypes that aren't particularly known to be associated with uh, inhalational exposure. So, for instance, 45% of connective tissue disease patients uh, had an inhalational exposure history, and 64% of IPAF patients had an inhalational exposure history. In terms of our hypothesis that it would vary by demographics, uh, we found that more men than women had any exposure. More men also had occupational exposures, and more men had uh, multiple exposures. Um, interestingly, we found that in terms of race, a white race was significantly associated with bird exposure. There was also a non-significant trend uh, of white race being associated with hobby exposure compared to all other uh, races. And then in terms of uh, clinical outcomes and survival, uh, we didn't find any difference in baseline lung function or, or significant differences in baseline, baseline lung function or radiologic findings. Uh, we did find an unadjusted uh, worse survival and transplant-free survival in patients with um, any inhalational exposure compared to no exposure, but this wasn't significant after multivariable adjustment. So some of those uh, differences, uh, I mean, the, the, the male exposure 
I guess most would expect that, but the differences um, for uh, hobbies and bird exposure, specifically in the white races, um, that was intriguing. And uh, how did you interpret that? And what do you think your findings mean? Yeah, so that, that's a good question. So as far as the demographics, um, as, as far as the gender differential, um, I think it, it. I think you're right that it was relatively expected. I mean, it's known that men compared to women do have more occupations that involve dust and also more men than women within the same job will be will have more dust exposure in that same job um, but i do think this is the first time it's described uh, in all interstitial lung disease patients and so it's particularly interesting and something to look out for um, it was interesting however um, while more men had more occupational exposure more women had domestic mold exposure and so I think um, this, as well as the white race associated with bird exposure, kind of hints at the fact that we're right now, specifically I only asked about exposures that are known to be associated with any type of interstitial lung disease or pneumoconiosis, and I think there's more exposures associated with other uh, demographic patterns that we still just don't know about. And so it kind of gets to the question that we're not going to know unless we ask. And so both asking about all these known exposures, as well as getting a more granular and systematic history about inhalational exposures in all of these patients, I think will reveal uh, more associations down the line. Uh, regarding the white race and bird exposure, I also found that interesting. Um, I wonder if it just has to do with, you know, things like socioeconomic status or, again, uh, you know, just the, the types of questions we're asking are already are framed in a way that is dealt with the uh, dominant, dominant population that we know has interstitial lung disease. You know, there, there is a white predominance in all of our prior ILD research. And so as we're developing more knowledge about um, other non-white races and interstitial lung diseases, I wonder if there's going to be more exposures that come to the forefront. And uh, I think it's an important avenue for future research. Uh, Dr. Fernandez, uh, you had the chance to review this paper. What struck you about the findings, and how did you interpret them? There are several interesting findings. Um, again, as, as well described by Dr. Lee, it is really interesting how in this study uh, they brought to light the issue that exposures are common and prevalent across ILDs. Uh, uh, not just in patients with hypersensitivity pneumonitis. I think, therefore, the contribution of occupational, environmental, or home exposures should be considered in all patients with ILD. And uh, most importantly, a high index of suspicion and that throughout history is essential. Um, the other thing that I, that I think is really interesting is if you look at the tables and you examine the data carefully, uh, Multiple exposures were, was quite prevalent, and it was defined as one or more exposures from work and or home uh, that, in fact, were, com uh, were independent of gender, race, and diagnosis. Um, and so, again, suggesting that an anti-exposure capable of contributing to possibly to the ILD can take place in almost any indoor environment under the appropriate circumstances, and a simple job title or a non-occupational environmental screening question in isolation, you know, such as, like, do you see or smell mold, cannot be used as the only way to, to exclude a potential risk. Um, and so all of which I think highlight the importance of taking a comprehensive history uh, to improve the sensitivity of detecting the insight in anti-exposure. 
I think also that the study brought to light an indirect observation, uh, which is relevant to physicians and patients, in that when confronted with multiple exposures, given the importance of the correct identification of the source and the subsequent elimination and mitigation of that source, including an occupational medicine specialist or an industrial or environmental hygienist should always be considered. Um, I think it's also very intriguing that the reported exposure to birds was similar between IPF and hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And I think this finding emphasized the importance, as done in this study, of MDV to enhance the, the accuracy and the confidence of the diagnosis through consensus. And this is key because, as you could imagine, a misdiagnosis of IPF uh, of an IPS patient with a potential negligible exposure as HP can lead to an effective management. And another very interesting observation uh, that Dr. Lee mentioned uh, that is somewhat concealed in the methodology is not, you know, necessarily described all throughout the discussion is that the study also stresses the importance of optimizing the EMR to capture and identify relevant exposure. I think is is really nice uh, what how they use the EMR to research this topic. I think it confirms that it can, the EMR can be adapted to include important elements of the environmental uh, uh, and occupational exposure, which can be valuable for the diagnosis um, and also research. And, uh, you know, for example, the use of the clinical decision support to notify the clinician of a possible work or home related exposure when answering yes or no screening questions made to the patient with the option of a free text to elaborate as done in the study and, and, and obtaining more detail than uh, can help save time, in fact, and facilitate this type of research. And lastly, you know, as, as, I, as, as I mentioned, previous studies regard, uh, have pretty much uh, looked at the relationship between exposure and ILD primarily focused in IPF. And the novelty of this study relies on evaluating, again, the impact of exposures and outcomes on the most prevalent ILDs that we, we see in clinic and not just IPF and HP. So also, despite finding a worse uh, survival that did not maintain significance after uh, the adjustment that was done by, I think it was the GAP score and smoking, I think despite that, the study has offered a framework uh, for the exploration of this hypothesis for future and hopefully uh, in, in larger studies trying to help answer this issue of exposures and outcome in across different ILDs. Well, Dr. Fernandez, I agree with you. The, the, the EMR uh, the definitely offered a, a novel feature of this study. I do want to dig down on this question of exposure versus association versus causation. Um, the study was able to identify certain exposures, but how are clinicians able to state, you know, this uh, particular factor was responsible for causing that disease? Are we any closer to that uh, in, in the research of interstitial lung disease, and what do we still need to do? I mean, well, I think, I think, oh. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I think you highlight this nicely in your editorial, Dr. Fernandez, about how, at least in this particular study, we were you know, first off, we're not able to assess causation because this wasn't a case control study, but also for our particular patients, they were already very far along their course, and so it's hard to assess, you know, any particular exposure relationship um, with outcome, like any any one particular exposure. And so that's why 
systematic and granular taking of exposure history earlier on in the course, maybe even early on in certain high-risk populations like familial ILD or, you know, patients with family history of ILD is going to be so important. Uh, but Dr. Fernandez, continue. Sure. And, you know, um, is, is, you know, the way to establish causality, and this is really important in terms of, the, uh, you know, how irrelevant how ex uh, is exposure in terms of causing or contributing to the pathogenesis of the ILV, you know, first of all, as, as we tend to do in clinic, you need to establish the epidemiological context, right? You know, how frequent uh, is the disease where you practice, right? Uh, the geographic area, um, what is the climate? Um, I think it's key always to use a structured questionnaire, whether this is embedded in the medical records, in the EMR, uh, and then used to guide a discussion with the patient or as a paper uh, questionnaire given to the patient is extremely important to help uh, minimize recall bias. Um, you know, among the things that, you know, we emphasize uh, uh, to our colleagues and, and fellows and, and residents when they rotate our ILV clinic is that uh, is using open-ended questions. Uh, you know, uh, again, adapted to the to the context of where you practice and where that that patient is coming from. Um, the other thing that I like to do, uh, and is that I always uh, include family members and caregivers when possible in the exposure history taking process, because um, there are many, many occasions, of course, because of recall bias. You know, the patient may not tell you uh, things that other family members may know. Uh, I think it's also really helpful to uh, use visual reconstruction, uh, such as a web-based uh, geographical maps and pictures and drawings uh, from the patient. I ask the patient, you know, of course, with permission, and, you know, or, you know, can I, can I Google map where you are? And you might be surprised of the things that you might find around the home or the house of some of these patients who come to see you. Um, and, again, I think the, uh, the, the exposure questionnaire, uh, is key, and uh, it has to include exposure survey, a work history, and environmental history. And it may, in many cases, you may this may need to take another visit uh, to try to to capture that exposure because you know we're, we're time limited, and uh, sometimes part of the issue is that because of that we we might miss an important exposure that might be contributing to the lung disease. Those are very important factors. Uh, Dr. Lee, what comments do you have about uh, Dr. Fernandez's uh, remarks? I absolutely 100% agree. Um, I think time is always an issue, and I think you're right that sometimes it does require an extra visit. Or, you know, I think this is another great way for trainees to get involved um, if you happen to be in an academic medical center uh, where, you're, where you have trainees that are able to uh, help you take a more thorough uh, history if you don't, you know, always have the time as well. Um, and I think it also involves, as you mentioned before, you know, the thoroughness, the systematicness. I think you're right that um, while it's a, a balance between the open-ended questions but making sure that you're being systematic about at least the categories and the types of questions that you're asking so that people have the freedom and the interviewer has the freedom to, you know, go down a particular route, but at the same time you're making sure you're covering everything. Um, you mentioned earlier that, you know, a key finding of our paper was also that multiple exposures are prevalent. And I think that the other impl implication of that is it doesn't just stop at one exposure. 
Um, so even if you have a patient that has an, uh, an exposure to silica or is an avid gardener um, and is exposed to lots of mold, those aren't the only things that you should ask, and you should continue to ask the rest of the questions and not just stop there. Um, I think your, uh, your uh, mapping um, and Google mapping and talking about locations is also going to be key. And in the future, I think more work needs to be done to kind of integrate both the home location as well as the, the work location um, of these patients in the future. Definitely. Uh, so, Afli, I do want to comment on the fact that um, so, so you had the benefits of working at a tertiary center, mm-hmm. um, which allows you the resources. You know, you, you have referral, you have a cohort of ILD patients. Some may question um, whether or not they may have introduced bias, uh, specifically sampling bias, if patients have to travel a great distance to get to your ILD clinic, whether or not related to socioeconomic factors. How would you respond to that? Oh, 100%. I mean, I think there's always going to be some selection bias with these type of studies. Um, I think that we do, however, see a wide variety of patients. Um, I think our racial diversity in particular is uh, some of the highest in these, in these ILD cohorts. Uh, we see a significant amount of community members as well. Um, but I think that's an issue in the future is going to be uh, making sure that we're capturing all sorts of interstitial lung disease patients. And that's where these um, national and multinational um, ILD registries are really going to come into play. Definitely. What other limitations did you note, uh, Dr. Lee? And then after that, I'll turn to Dr. Fernandez to comment on any other limitations we haven't covered. Sure. Well, we've already touched on the fact that it's a single center study at a tertiary care center, and so it may not be applicable everywhere. Um, we also, um, as I mentioned earlier, they were all ILD patients without a control population, so we weren't necessarily able to assess causation of exposure. Um, another thing is that um, we weren't able to capture, again, it's great that it's an EMR. You know, we really wanted to focus on the EMR, but also we weren't able to capture the role of ex- exposure mitigation, um, and, you know, in the future, we're working on making sure that we document um, whether exposures are ongoing or have stopped. Um, and then, um, as Dr. Fernandez also mentioned in the editorial, you know, while after multivariable adjustment, we didn't find any effect on survival, it doesn't mean that there isn't any, uh, there might not be any effect on um, exposures, whether acute or chronic, um, on overall survival. Um, we are, you know, we're seeing these patients for, further down the line. Um, then from when the exposure and, you know, lung disease interaction may happen. And so this effect may just be something that needs to be discovered earlier in order to assess its overall clinical outcome. Okay. Useful comment. Uh, Dr. Fernandez? I think another, I'd like to bring um, another important point. About eight years ago, in this very journal, we brought to light uh, the prognostic importance of antigen identification in patients. With, with hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And ever since that time, there has been several studies addressing this issue, including, you know, indirectly this one, hovering in a broader population across ILV, which I think it was, it was great. Now, reflecting on what I, what we did way back in our, in our center, we show that better survival in, in subjects with an antithyroid exposure. And in that study, we documented avoidance of the Inciting antigen and abatement procedures were recommended in all patients, including but not limited to the, you know, extensive cleanup and, and or abatements, for example, for mold, water damage, removal and avoidance of water-containing sources, uh, such, a portable, such as a, a portable humidifier, fire, uh, and, and so forth. All this might explain, in part, the better survival we noticed in our study at that time. However, a significant limitation reflecting back on what we did is 
uh, is that in that study, as well as this one, uh, we did not clearly document it or report it uh, in the study if the abatement intervention, in fact, did happen by reviewing the medical records. Um, and I think, like in this study, this remains an important confounder that needs to be uh, captured and detail uh, and detailed when determining the impact of an exposure identification uh, uh, can affect survival. In other words, when determining the association between exposure and survival, it's not enough just to report if the patient has an exposure and the type of exposure, but the variable anti avoidance, you know, yes, no, or unclear, need to be added to the analysis. Uh, another important advice for future studies, uh, you know, in this regard is that the estimated duration and frequency and intermittency, uh, intermittency of the exposure, which was quite uh, well acknowledged by Dr. Lee and colleagues, needs to be considered in order to better understand uh, the impact of different exposures on the clinical uh, course across ILDs. Definitely. Um, so, Dr. Fernandez, I do want to ask you, you know, in terms of where the study leads us to the next steps, you know, what are the future steps uh, that we can envision in research uh, pertaining to interstitial lung disease and exposure? Um, sure. Uh, you know, uh, I think, again, uh, this study emphasizes and increases the awareness, which is extremely important for uh, somewhat rare diseases uh, other than IPF um, other ILDs about the importance of a systematic approach, again, to exposure assessment, for, both for research and in the clinic, not just when suspecting uh, hypersensitivity pneumonitis, uh, but again, all ILDs. In that regard, uh, uh, again, incorporating a structured questionnaire, either embedded in the EMR, as I already mentioned, or giving that to the patient during the initial uh, visit, uh, can help prevent premature closure. Uh, and the conclusion of the exposure history is negative. Uh, this is why in the recently uh, published guidelines, we emphasize the importance of not just the optimizing the exposure as yes or no, but establishing the likelihood of that exposure. Um, and again, using the questionnaire can, you know, aid patient recall and save time and ensure consistency. Um, and as I alluded to, all of the possible prognostic value of classifying ILD patients based on antigen status is valuable. Anti-inavoidance documentation and reporting should also be part of the certification of patients. Therefore, I think it would be important in addition of adjusting for exposure duration and frequency, determining whether, whether the prognostic significance of an identifiable antigen exposure among uh, patients with different ILDs who did pursue antigen avoidance is compatible to those with an unknown antigen source. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Lee, your remarks? Absolutely. I agree with everything Dr. Fernandez said. Um, in addition, I think that, you know, this is a good foundation, as he, you know, mentioned, for starting to obtain more granularity regarding these exposures, for instance exposure timing, how long were patients in a job, was any, you know, prote you know protective equipment used um, in order to, you know, tease that out a little bit further, particularly when you think about things like dose-response relationships and really trying to get at which exposure exposures are clinically meaningful. 
Um, and I really just want to reiterate the importance of capturing all of this uh, data systematically um, in registries um, so that we can decide what's meaningful both on the popula- you know, ILD population level as well as on the patient level. Gotcha. So um, I do want to be mindful of your time. Um, so as we draw to the end of this podcast, I do want to give each of you an opportunity just to summarize any key comments that you want to leave our audience with or any comments that we um, that you feel the audience should know about that we haven't had the opportunity to cover as yet. Um, I'll give uh, Dr. Fernandez the first word and allow Dr. Lee to conclude for us. Dr. Fernandez? Thank you. I believe that looking forward, this study underscores that need to establish a well-defined uh, multicenter cohorts of ILD patients with accurately characterized occupational and environmental exposures to guide future clinical investigations and bench research, as um, I mentioned in the editorial. In other words, phenotyping uh, of, of, of the patient, of research patients, should also include a comprehensive exposure history if we are to move on into mechanistic studies. I think that the establishment of this cohorts could also facilitate studies of genetic variants, biomarkers, and identification of exposure signatures to better understand the gene-environment interactions across all ILDs. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Lee? I completely agree with Dr. Fernandez. We're not going to know uh, unless we start asking. And once we start asking all of these patients, I think um, it will help tease apart some of the uh, causative mechanisms behind uh, patient ILDs and any particular, as you mentioned, exposure, exposure gene interactions or specific exposure phenotypes that might exist that we don't currently have um, much understanding for. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have both of you on the podcast with us. And a very big kudos to you, Dr. Lee, for completing this work during your fellowship. Oh, well done. <laughs> thank uh, you so much. Uh, so a big thank you, Dr. Lee um, and Dr. Fernandez, for a great conversation. And a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a chess podcast.